0: You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au So this morning, we're getting into part two of uh, a message I preached two weeks ago before the send-off. Um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit I'll be talking about. So if you open your Bibles to John chapter 1, verse 29. And Lord, we ask that you would open your word to us this morning to reveal to us your truth. In Jesus' name, Amen. So two weeks ago, I started looking at the baptism of the Holy Spirit because that was the mentioned in the next passage that we got to in John's Gospel. So a brief refresher, beginning with that passage. The next day, verse 29, He, that is John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptising with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it, it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptise with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. So our focus two weeks ago was on verse 33, the second half of verse 33, particularly the bit where John the Baptist says, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, This is he who baptises with the Holy Spirit. Now I made some fairly big statements about this subject, some of which many people disagree with. I began by suggesting to you, I don't think this is particularly controversial, but I suggested to you that Jesus Christ, even though he is, was and always will be fully God, laid aside his divine privileges while he walked the earth. He was fully God, but he was also fully man. He lived and ministered, not out of his omnipotent power as God, but out of his weakness as a man. And he ministered as a man, filled with the Holy Spirit. Certainly it begs the question, if Jesus was fully God, why would he need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? We read in Luke's Gospel that after his baptism by John, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And then when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So my contention was that Jesus Christ chose not to exercise any of his power as God, but chose instead to switch off, if you like, the power that he had, the divine uh, authority and power he had as God and operate as a man filled and led by the Holy Spirit. Then I made the claim that this experience that Jesus had of being filled with the Holy Spirit is essentially no different to what is offered to us today in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If that's true, it should be a great encouragement to us all. We know that God likes to work through weakness. He likes to demonstrate his power through broken vessels. It was his pattern right through the Bible. It continues to be his pattern today. for It is through our weakness that his greatness and his power is most clearly shown. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came on people for specific purposes and events, but it seems that the Holy Spirit didn't remain on people permanently and also that the Holy Spirit didn't indwell anyone. But since the day of Pentecost, that situation has changed. I also made the claim that this infilling is an important part of our Christian life. While we can go through Christian life without ever experiencing this baptism with the Holy Spirit, as I would understand it, it is a gift of the Father, Scripture tells us, for a purpose. The Bible seems to make a reasonably big deal about this, so I think we probably should take it fairly seriously ourselves. And I also talked about the big claim that Jesus made when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So how am I to understand that, given that Jesus raised people from the dead? How can I ever do greater works than Jesus? Or was Jesus just using hyperbole? Before I go any further, I have a confession to make. I struggle with this. I struggle with the promise of Jesus that we will do greater works. I struggle with his teaching about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I struggle not because I question its truth, but because I believe it to be true. I believe it is the pretty clear teaching of Scripture. My struggle is not the believing, my struggle is the doing. It's the living it out. It's a daily wrestle for me to live what I believe to be true. So if you find it a struggle yourself, I can sympathise. Because I'm going to tell you today what I believe the Word of God is calling us to, even though I rarely achieve what I'm preaching about. And even though we all imperfectly live it out. I also mentioned the other week that some of my favourite theologians disagree with the claims I'm making today. I don't take their disagreement uh, lightly. For almost everything else they say about Christian doctrine I absolutely agree with. But the more I've listened to their arguments about this, the more convinced I am that their arguments are based on their traditions their presuppositions and their personal experience more so than on the Bible. For it seems to me they make complex involved arguments to explain why scripture doesn't mean what it seems to be saying. Not all of my favourite theologians disagree with me though. Some agree, at least to some degree. But one of the men that I have the greatest respect for is probably diametrically opposed to what I understand in this teaching. I've listened to his teaching on this topic a couple of times because I don't want to be uh, teaching heresy, um, but I think he's got it wrong. And that's a very big claim to make as well. He's one of the premier theologians and Bible teachers of the last few decades or more. However, I can't hang off his coattails I can't believe it just because he says it's so. I have to search out scripture for myself to see if it's true. This man's since gone to be with the Lord, so he knows for sure now whether he was right or whether I'm right. I'm left behind to work out the text as best I can. It's important that you understand that my view is not the only view out there. There are a lot of people that would disagree with me, but there are also a lot of people that would agree It's important that you determine for yourself, with the guidance of the Holy Scripture, what the Bible is actually teaching about this. Actually, it would be so much easier to accept his teaching, which is the teaching of much of the church outside of charismatic and Pentecostal circles, because it would take a lot of pressure off. I would no longer have to compare myself with Scripture and think, well, I fall short here, I fall short there it would be a lot easier to live what they teach. But I can't do that in good conscience. For I believe scripture is calling me, and it is calling you, to live beyond ourselves, to get out of our comfort zones. And this is certainly something that takes me out of my comfort zone. Someone once accused me of being an idealist, that is a person who represents things as they should be, rather than they really are. I probably have to accept that accusation. But isn't all of Christian life a calling to live beyond ourselves? Isn't all of it a calling to live what Scripture reveals to us, not what we experience in our daily life? For me, this is no different. Another thing I should make clear before we go much further is that this doctrine is not a matter of salvation. It has no bearing on whether you will or will not be eternally saved if you experience it. That that should be sufficient reason for us to extend grace to those who differ from us, regardless of which side of the fence you sit on. Unfortunately, too many people put up barriers over this doctrine, rather than extend the hand of fellowship. The old saying applies to this, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. This is one of those non-essentials. Having said that, I still believe it is important for us to understand, to strive to live in it and to strive to live it out. So let me reason with you from scripture why I believe in the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Scripture talks about at least three baptisms. The first one is John's baptism. The second one, Christian baptism. And the third one, baptism with the Holy Spirit. I heard a teaching many years ago that identified seven different baptisms in scripture. But those three that I've just named are the three most significant and the three most important for our understanding. And the one that concerns me, of course, is number three, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So what exactly is baptism? I'm probably not telling you anything you don't know with this. We've all seen people get dunked in a swimming pool or had ba- seen babies have their heads, foreheads sprinkled with water. But what does it all mean? The Greek word translated "baptize" means to immerse, to dip. It's a word that was used by the ancient equivalent of a laundry worker, who would pro- who would dye a garment by dipping it into a white cloth into red dye. He would baptize that garment, and when he took the garment out of that red dye, it was no longer white; it was now red. So the the Garment had changed its identity from a white cloth to a red cloth and it was now in union, if you like, with a different colour. At its heart, baptism is just about that, changing your identity and the union that comes from that change. You could liken it to a public declaration that you've renounced your citizenship of one nation to take up citizenship of another those of you who have come from different countries and applied to become Australian citizens would understand that concept. You now identify yourself as Australian and you have all the rights and responsibilities that Australian citizens have. But don't get the idea, however, that baptism has some magical properties associated with it, like they believed in medieval times where they forced unbelievers to be baptised so that they would be saved. Thank you. Baptism doesn't change an unbeliever into a believer but it does make a public declaration about an inner change that's already occurred. I'll very briefly go over the first two baptisms before dealing with number three in more depth. John's baptism was a baptism of repentance in preparation for the coming Messiah. It's a bit like cleaning your house when you have guests coming around. You vacuum, you clean the toilets, you pick up the rubbish off the floors, set the table, get out the good cutlery. John's baptism was a bit like that. John's baptism was about examining your heart and getting yourself right in preparation for the greatest guest of all, Jesus Christ. Christian baptism is an identification with Christ. There's much symbolism in Christian baptism. It's symbolic of our death to the old life of our burial and our resurrection from the dead into new life. There's a few different versions of how it's practised in the modern church. There's there's a full immersion or sprinkling, there's believers' baptism or infant baptism, but fundamentally it's a public declaration about now identifying yourself with Jesus Christ. The baptism with the Holy Spirit is a gift of the Father, it tells us in the Bible whereby the Holy Spirit infills us and empowers us for service. The scripture evidence, in my opinion, is that this is not the same thing as salvation. While it may occur at the same time as salvation, sometimes it occurs at the later date. Take note that baptism is always an action performed by a third party on a believer into or with some medium such as water. So John baptized Jesus with or in water the holy spirit baptizes believers into Christ a christian baptizes a fellow believer with or in water and Jesus uh, and Jesus baptizes believers with or in the holy spirit i also suggested to you the other week that there should be some evidence accompanying that baptism with the holy spirit you should know if you've received it And others should be able to tell that something's happened. We'll get to that a little later on. But before we go too far, I need to clarify some of the phrases that are commonly used, because I think they actually cause the confusion. The way it's put here in John 1.33 and in other verses is, He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. The initial parallel is with John's baptism of Jesus. John immersed Jesus in the water baptising him with or in the water. Similarly, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an activity performed by Jesus Christ on a believer. Jesus immerses the person in the Holy Spirit. So there's five common ways of referring to this event, and two of them, I think, cause the confusion. The first one is baptism with the Holy Spirit, which is what John uses here. This baptism is done by Jesus on the believer. There's baptism in the Holy Spirit, which is effectively the same way of of describing that event, a different way of describing the same event. Third one, being filled with the Holy Spirit. From Scripture it would appear that being filled with the Holy Spirit is a phrase that's synonymous and interchangeable with baptism with the Holy Spirit. The fourth one, baptism of the Holy Spirit, and I think this is where we start to get some confusion. This is, uh, while I don't want to be too dogmatic about it, it would seem to me there is a baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is not the same as the baptism with the Holy Spirit. The baptism of the Holy Spirit appears to be part of the process of regeneration, where the Holy Spirit is the one doing the baptising. And he baptises a person into Christ, as Paul says in Galatians 3.27. So in the baptism with the Spirit, Jesus baptises the person in the Holy Spirit. But in this one, the Holy Spirit baptises a person into Christ. They're two different things as I see it in Scripture. But they're the two, I think, that get confused. And the fifth one is baptism by the Holy Spirit, which is essentially the same thing as baptism of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks in Romans 6.3 about the Holy Spirit baptising us into Christ and into his death. So that's where I think much of the misunderstanding has come about with this teaching. People mix up the terminology and assume that two different phrases mean the same thing. The work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is not, to my understanding, the same thing as the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Regeneration is normally a hidden work. It's something that happens inside us. And while there might be an outworking of joy or something, it's something that people can't really tell whether it's happened or not. Those of you who have grown up in the Christian household always believing in Christ would, would know that at some point your heart was changed to become a genuine believer, but you can't put your finger on when it was. It's just something that seems to have happened organically. Others of us have come from a background where we either didn't know anything about Christ or we were rebellious and our conversion was more dramatic and there was obvious change in our lives. But essentially regeneration is a hidden work. It changes our standing before God and therefore changes our eternal destiny. In contrast, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is experiential. Now experiential is a dirty word for some Christians. They don't like the idea of experiences of felt things. Everything has to be intellectual. But the baptism with the Holy Spirit is experiential and it normally has immediate and visible effects but has no impact on your eternal destiny. It's important you know that. So what's the scripture evidence? Two weeks ago we briefly considered some of the Old Testament prophecies about this baptism. We looked at Ezekiel 36, 26, where the Lord said, A new spirit I will put within you. And through Isaiah, he said, I'll pour water upon thirsty ground and streams on the parched land. So will I pour my spirit upon your offspring. In Joel, he said, and this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, according to Peter, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also at that time, I will pour out my Spirit upon men and women servants. So how are these prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament? First we need to go to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2. We see there the first fulfillment of John the Baptist's words, that Jesus would baptize them with the Holy Spirit, to set the scene, After his resurrection and before he ascended back to heaven, Jesus told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which would clothe them with power from on high. This power would enable them to be witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples did what they were told, waiting patiently for Jesus to pour out his spirit as he had promised. Then on the day of Pentecost... It happened, the great feast day for the Jews. A day day when there were huge crowds of faithful believers from around the known world in Jerusalem. The disciples were all gathered in one place when it happened. There came a sudden rushing wind from heaven, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear, each of us in his own native language?' Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome from right around the world, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. The Spirit descended on the disciples in a similar fashion to the way he descended on Jesus at his baptism. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit descended as a dove. On the day of Pentecost, he descended as a fire, just as John the Baptist said he would in Luke 3.16. The immediate result of this baptism with the Holy Spirit was a powerful outpouring of public praise to God. The disciples were filled to overflowing with the Holy Spirit, And though they were uneducated men from Galilee, they began speaking in foreign languages, languages they had never learned. And they spoke in languages that the visitors to Jerusalem understood. And those visitors heard them speaking the mighty works of God. The first and the most basic result of the baptism with the Holy Spirit then should be an overflow of praise to God and about God. Have you ever felt so overcome with the glory, the majesty, the power of God that your heart soars and your mouth wants to sing his praises? I hope so, because if you have, that's a fairly good sign that you've received this baptism of the Holy Spirit. Of course, not everyone who heard the disciples that day praising God accepted that God was at work. There were plenty of critics, plenty of people who accused them of being drunk. It was no different from Je- for Jesus, they accused him of being a drunkard uh, It will be no different for us today If you want to declare God's mighty works publicly Don't be surprised if you're accused of being a religious nutcase A super spook or a shallow happy clapper Human nature to criticise and condemn and tear down never changes The next result we see is Peter standing up explaining what is happening and preaching Christ crucified to the crowds. Remember Jesus said, When the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, Jesus said, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. It should be no surprise to us that the baptism of the Holy Spirit causes us to glorify Jesus Christ, for that is the express purpose of the Spirit's coming. In fact, I'd go further to say, that if your experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit hasn't caused you to praise Jesus, hasn't caused you to want to share him with others, hasn't caused you to worship him more and and to serve him more faithfully, then what you've experienced probably hasn't been the genuine baptism of the Holy Spirit. Peter preached Christ crucified with such power that 3,000 people were cut to the heart and they repented of their sins. Remember that Jesus, when he was baptised, was filled with the Holy Spirit and he went out in the power of the Spirit. Power to witness to Christ is, I think, the most important result of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. We all need this baptism. If you have a heart for evangelism, you desperately need this baptism. Your witness and our witness is weak and ineffectual without the empowering of the Holy Spirit. The best we have to offer is wise and eloquent words, like any self-help guru might, might feed you. But if we, have, if we have a demonstration of the spirit and the power, then we have hope for being able to reach the lost. Most any of you think that this outpouring on the day of Pentecost was a one-off event in history, just for the disciples in the early church. Consider Peter said, The promise is for you and for your children, And for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. While this world continues, there is no restriction on who may receive the promise. And there is no expiry date on this promise. If God has called you to himself, this promise is for you. So we find when we look further in the book of Acts, in chapter 10, we see the story of the Holy Spirit being poured out on the first of the Gentiles. Peter was in Caesarea telling Cornelius and his household about the life and work of Christ, about his death and his resurrection, about faith and the forgiveness of sins. Peter hadn't even finished preaching when the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter returned from Jerusalem and had to justify while he was eating with the Gentiles and sharing the gospel with them. He first explained the vision that God had given to him about not limiting God's blessings to the Jews only. Then he said, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, When we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. One of the things I want you to notice here is when the Holy Spirit was poured out on Cornelius and his household, it came with evidence that something had happened in them. They began speaking in tongues and extolling God. In fact, to Peter, the similarities were so close, he declared that this is what happened to us on the day of Pentecost. The promise of the Father, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, that Jesus said he would give, had come to the Gentiles also. The example of Cornelius and his household might suggest to us that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is no different to salvation. Plenty of Christians make that claim. After all, Cornelius... Seem to come to faith and receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit at the same time. It's easy to understand why people would believe that. Certainly when a person is saved, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in them, imparting eternal life to them and working in them to conform them to the image of Christ. After his resurrection, Jesus breathed on the disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. But he also said, I'm sending you the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. If salvation is the same as the baptism with the Holy Spirit, why would Jesus tell the disciples they needed to wait for the outpouring that occurred at Pentecost? After all, they were already already believers, and he had just imparted the Holy Spirit to them. Every instance in the book of Acts, except for Cornelius, shows the baptism of the Holy Spirit happening to people who were already believers. seems clear to me, at least, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is distinct from salvation. Cornelius, though, is not the last word on this. Before Paul became the greatest preacher and evangelist of the fledgling Christian church, he was known as Saul and was the greatest enemy and persecutor of the church. He took his role as defender of the Jewish faith so seriously That he travelled around hunting down the believers, the Christians Arresting them and sending them back to Jerusalem for trial and execution Then one day on the way to Damascus to hunt more of them He was confronted by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself He was struck blind for three days Until the Lord told Ananias to go and pray for him In Acts 9 it tells us So Ananias departed and entered the house And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately... He proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem for all those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. We don't have time to go into it today, but being filled with the Holy Spirit seems to be a phrase interchangeable with the baptism with the Holy Spirit. At what point was Saul converted to faith? At what point did he become a Christian himself? I would suggest it was while he was laying on the ground, blinded and being challenged by Jesus about his persecution of the church. I would suggest it was when he cried out, who are you, Lord? But it would be another three days before he received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the infilling. And and the result of this infilling was a powerful proclamation of Christ. In Acts 19, we see another outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this time on a group of people who already believed. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptised? They said, Into John's baptism. Now these guys were probably, almost certainly, Jewish, because they were the only ones that were interested in what John had to say and were going out to him to be baptised. So they had John's baptism, and Paul said, John baptised with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. Interesting question that Paul asked them. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul didn't question the reality of their Christian faith. But he clearly expected them to know whether they had received the Holy Spirit. Unlike us, there seemed to be no confusion in Paul's mind about this. His own experience, of course, was that conversion and baptism were not necessarily synonymous, or baptism of the Holy Spirit not necessarily synonymous. So Paul was concerned to ensure they lacked nothing in their experience of God and in their empowering of the Holy Spirit. Paul firstly made sure they were believers, then he baptised them properly, then he laid hands on them to receive the Holy Spirit. And when they were filled with the Spirit, there was evidence. The evidence in this case was that they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. Notice that this baptism of the Holy Spirit hadn't occurred when they first believed. And it didn't happen when they were water-baptised. It wasn't until Paul laid hands on them that they received it. Some Christian groups would insist based on this text and on the experience of Cornelius and also on the day of Pentecost that tongues is the only genuine evidence of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't believe you can go that far because there are instances where tongues is not mentioned. But the biblical evidence seems to be there's a common sign and the evidence seems to me that there is some sign where people extol and praise God. From the book of Acts, we've seen a few variations on the order of events. As is typical of the ways of God, he seems to enjoy mixing things up a bit. After all, you see, Jesus never healed people the same way twice. I think God does that deliberately so we don't become too formulaic in the way we minister to people. It forces us to be dependent on God. Jesus said, I only do what I hear the Father saying. We should be doing the same. What are you saying, Lord? How do you want to minister in this situation? Rather than applying formulas every time we're praying for someone or every time we're asking God for something. But there is one non-negotiable, one thing that doesn't change regardless of the circumstances. In every case, the person must be or must become a Christian for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to be available. The Holy Spirit is not available to those who are not Christians. To those who don't put their faith in Christ. So you either have to be already or you must become a Christian to receive this gift of the Father. So what we've seen so far is that unbelievers becoming believers simultaneously are being filled with the Holy Spirit. Then at a later time getting water baptised. That's in Acts chapter 10. Believers getting water baptised. Simultaneously being filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter nine and believers getting water baptized then later being filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts eight and Acts nineteen. The ideal situation, I think, is that when a first person first believes, we should be praying for and expecting them to be baptized with the Holy Spirit at the same time. Unfortunately, the ideal situation doesn't happen very much in the modern church, for too many of either confused the baptism of the Holy Spirit with regeneration Or they've rejected it entirely There's also a couple of variations on the means by which people receive the gift Sometimes they're filled spontaneously as they hear Jesus Christ proclaimed The day of Pentecost and Cornelius and his family Sometimes they're filled when another believer lays hands on them Such as Paul did The important thing for us to see is that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not the same thing as becoming a Christian and is not the same thing as water baptism. But it is the birthright of every believer, for it is the gift of the Father. Getting back to some of my opening statements, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, I believe, is a vital part of our Christian life, as much as I struggle to live in that. It's the means by which Jesus Christ empowers us for more effective Christian service. While there's many personal benefits to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's not primarily meant to make you feel good. Rather, it is to empower you for service to others. But just as Jesus was called to proclaim good news, so we Christians today are also called to proclaim good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. In fact, I think we can safely say that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is intended to empower us for testimony to the greatness of God and to service in His name. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is not intended to make Christians happy, although that is a byproduct of it. It is meant to make us useful. Sadly, too many Christians seek this baptism of the Holy Spirit merely to make themselves feel good or to feel like God must love them, or that God must love them more than he loves that other person. One author has said, there are many Christians who, in seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit, are seeking personal ecstasy and raptures. They go to conventions and conferences for the deepening of the Christian life and come back and tell what a wonderful blessing they have received, referring to some new ecstasy that has come into their hearts. However, when you watch them, it's difficult to see that they are any more useful to their pastors or their churches than they were before. And one is compelled to think that whatever they received, they have not received the real baptism with the Holy Spirit. The people that go chasing this as an experience to make themselves feel good miss the point. They don't understand that the infilling with the Holy Spirit is for the common good, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12.7, It is given to us for service to others, not for ourselves. You should feel great joy when you experience it, but have you become more useful? The infilling is how Jesus himself was empowered for his ministry. Sure, none of us would imagine that we need less of God's empowering than Jesus needed. If Jesus didn't start his ministry until he was baptised with the Holy Spirit, How much more do we need it? It's also the reason why Jesus could say with integrity that we would do greater things than he did. He ministered for three short years in a small area of the Middle East. But Christians have been ministering now for 2,000 years in every nation on earth and to every people group under the sun. And incredible miracles still happen today. Despite the opposition of the devil, despite the unbelief and even sadly the opposition of many Christians, let me tell you about a couple that I know personally of. First was my own experience. We had a friend a number of years ago, he was in his 60s, but he was fit and healthy and he had that ramrod upright posture that you see in the old British war movies of the majors and the colonels and that, that bolt upright, perfect posture. He looked uh, just like one of those. He had the moustache, like a, a uh, World War II British pilot or something. He had the moustache and everything to go with it. Um, but I noticed one day he hadn't been at, work, at church for a couple of weeks. So I spoke to his wife after the service and she said he'd hurt his back and he's been flat on his back for over a week now. And uh, the spasms in his back were so intense it would take him 45 minutes or more to get off the floor and crawl to the toilet. He was in incredible pain. I sympathise because I've felt that exact same pain myself where I've been flat on my back on the floor and trying to get up can take 20 minutes or more just to get on my knees to stand up. Interestingly though, she told me about this. It wasn't compassion, I felt, for my friend. It was outrage, which took me by surprise, I've got to say. I asked his wife if I could come around to pray for him, and I took a friend around that afternoon. We prayed for him, and he stood upright for the first time in more than a week, slept in his own bed that night, went for a seven-kilometre walk the next morning. And to my knowledge, he never had a recurrence of that back problem. We also had a man start coming to our church back in South Australia. He was a plasterer by trade who'd also had a crippling back injury and hadn't been able to work for a number of years. One day, while he was still an unbeliever, in desperation he sought prayer for his injury. Not only was he completely healed, but he got born again in the process. He was able to go back to work as a plasterer, which is a job that puts enormous strain on your back. I haven't personally witnessed it, but I know people whose word I trust who claim to have seen sight restored, hearing restored, wheelchairs discarded, all sorts of ailments healed by the Holy Spirit. Mel and I have personally met a young man who was used by God to raise someone from the dead. He was a shy young man. He was a New Guinea native. And uh, we had to coax the story out of him because he was concerned that if he told the story, people would think he was boasting. But one day he was on a ferry to one of the islands in New Guinea and on that ferry there was also the body of a man, a criminal, who had been killed by the police when they arrested him. This criminal had been been dead for a number of days and was being transported back to his family for burial. Our friend felt God tell him to go and wash the body. While he was doing it, God told him to cast out the spirit of death. When he did that, the body came back to life and jumped up off the slab it was laying on. Seventy or eighty people on that ferry got saved as a result of that man's actions, empowered and led by the Holy Spirit. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do greater works than I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father, Jesus said. I fear we've become so complacent that I have become so numbed and immune to the word and the power of God that we no longer have any expectation to see God moving with power today. Worse, I fear we would respond to an outpouring of the Holy Spirit with cynicism and criticism, looking for flaws and faults rather than rejoicing that God still moves and still works today. What a tragedy that would be. Jesus went into the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit and resisted the devil with the word of God and he returned, Luke tells us, in the power of the Spirit. We need this baptism. We need this infilling with the Holy Spirit. We need this promise of the Father. The Father doesn't give us toys and trinkets to mess with. When he promises something, you better believe it's something of value, something of importance. This promise is so valuable that Jesus thought it was necessary to give it to the church. Would we be so ungrateful that we would reject the gift today, the promise? The world will resist the message of the cross at every turn. Why would we want to go into the world without the equipment the Father has promised us? Why would we want to confront the world with the message of the gospel, with his message without the power that Jesus said he would give us, without the power that Jesus said we would need. There are plenty of people who would tell you that the book of Acts is describing events that happened back in Bible times merely for the purpose of getting the Christian church up and running. They would tell you the book of Acts is not meant to be an example and a pattern of our Christian life. I personally see no justification for that, apart from preconceived ideas and personal experience. For the rest of the New Testament talks to us about being filled with the Holy Spirit again and again, a term synonymous with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And assorted New Testament writings talk about the proper exercise of the gifts and the power that accompany that infilling. This baptism of the Holy Spirit is not a once-off event. It is not something you receive once and never have to worry about again. It is a daily necessity for us. It's been well said, I think, that we need to be regularly filled because we leak. We need to be filled afresh over and over again with the Holy Spirit if we're to be effective in our service for the Lord. Will you join me this morning in seeking to live up to that high calling of the Bible, to not settle for ordinary. We may never attain the heights we see in Scripture But is that sufficient reason for us not to aim high, not to try to reach that standard? Is that sufficient reason for not seeking the fullness that God has for us, that he wants to give us? I invite you this morning, if you've never received this gift of the Father, come forward for prayer. We will ask Jesus to pour it out. There's no standard of maturity you need to reach to receive it. There's no level of knowledge you have to attain to to receive it. It's not a private club by invitation only that only certain people get the opportunity to experience. The only condition required is that you be a child of God for it is a gift of the Father. If you know God as your Father, you qualify. Jesus told us to come to him to have our thirst quenched he told us to ask seek knock for the heavenly father will give the holy spirit to those who ask him and he said come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without price one of the purposes of the holy baptism of the holy spirit that i haven't touched on this morning Is the refreshing he brings We all get a bit stale sometimes We all need a fresh infilling with the Holy Spirit If you're not sure Or if the fire you once had in your belly Seems to have died down We can ask Jesus to fill you afresh If you've never met Jesus Christ There'll never be a better time than right now He is faithful and just To forgive your sins Don't put it off another day Thank you Lord that even though you call us to things that seem to be beyond us, we can have confidence that you only call us to good things. Thank you for the gift of the Father you have promised to us. Lord, would you refresh us and empower us now to your glory, Jesus, and in your precious name. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au